0: Well, just before we get going, I'm just curious, I just want to pile on to what Rich said, just a, a huge encouragement um, to see you guys serving. You guys serve us so well, um, music team, guys in the back, food, the whole gamut, even just on a, a night like tonight. There's so many people serving, and um, it's just sweet. You're headed home for Thanksgiving, and um, I just wanted to encourage you and let you know that in our elders meeting this week, we prayed for you um, as a group. We prayed for some of you by name you were on the roster at that point, but uh, we prayed for the entire group as you're heading home um, because we know Thanksgiving's fun and all that, but I talked with a number of you and I know you're going into really difficult situations. Um, I'm just curious, how many of you, if you're not too afraid to raise your hand, would say I'm nervous about something when I'm going back home into my family? Did you raise your hand? Just see that? Yeah. Nervous about things we're headed back in, so we're not all coming from nice, neat families. And uh, I know that you're headed back into some, some difficult situations. So just be encouraged that um, just as elders, we're praying for you. We're praying that the Lord would use you um, with what you know and then even what you don't know. So, uh, well, if you would, open back to First John. You know that we're there. Rich said I'm fairly predictable here. Um, our study together, uh, maybe too predictable. I may just throw you guys one, one Thursday and tell you to turn to Leviticus 3. Well, you know we've been in 1 John, and we've seen in our study this semester that this letter is all about what? Assurance, right. It's all about assurance. John wants us to know that we really do know the real Jesus. He wants us to know that we're really on the right path, that we really are children of God. He wants us to grow in that assurance, And 1 John's really practical. He tells us how to do that, how to to arrive. He doesn't just say, hey, I want you to be assured and then leave us there, but he actually tells us how to grow in that assurance. So how does it happen? How do we grow? Just by review. Well, you remember that initially, there's really two ways, okay, two intertwined ways that we grow. Initially, John writes to remind us of the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, and that's really the first way. John knows that the bedrock of Christian assurance, the bedrock of assurance for you and I, is Christ himself. It's his life and his death on our behalf. That's where our assurance comes from. It doesn't come first from within us. It comes from us looking outside of ourselves to him. We come, the only thing we bring to him is empty hands. We come humbly and gratefully, and we avail ourselves of his promises to forgive and to cleanse. And instead of denying our sin, instead of hiding it, instead of blaming it on, other, on other, other people, instead of minimizing our sin, instead of doing those things, we come humbly and freely and we confess it to God. We look away from ourselves and we look to Him in faith. We look to Christ. And He's standing, John reminds us in, in chapter 1 in chapter 2, He's standing at the Father's side, advocating for us. He's our propitiation. And so we find assurance, John says, at the outset by resting in Christ alone. But that's not all he says, is it? There's another way that we grow in assurance, and it's, it's connected to the first. Assurance, as we've often experienced, is not a static thing. It can ebb and flow in our lives as faith ebbs and flows, as our obedience is weakened or as it strengthened. So in other words, assurance grows in our lives, As we learn to navigate this hostile world by faith in Jesus. We learn to trust Him more and more. As we learn to imitate Him and obey Him in this world that we're in. Even as it's hostile toward us. So why is that? How does assurance grow as we learn to obey? Well, as we we learn to obey Him by faith, we see the evidence of our new birth. We see the evidence that God has brought us to life, that there's life actually, he's worked life in us. We see signs of life. So, throughout the back half of this letter, really, half of chapter 2 all the way through the end, so it's a little more like the back two-thirds of the letter, um, through this back half, John gives us instructions that will increase our assurance as we grow in obeying them. Does that make sense? He lays out some instructions. This field guide that we've been talking about over the last, I don't know, five weeks or so. In this field guide, as we learn to to trust what John says, we learn to trust the scriptures and obey them, this is the pathway to increasing assurance. This is John's field guide for navigating this evil world. So what's he told us? Where does he start? Again, just by by review. About halfway through chapter 2, verse 15, he tells us what? Do not love the world. That's his first command. That's his first instruction in the letter. Don't love the world. John knows that even as believers, even though we're new creatures in Christ, we will still be tempted by this evil world system. It's alluring to us. It makes us empty promises. And so we've got to remember that the world is passing away, John says, and we won't Shouldn't be enticed by it. We want to we spend our lives living for something that's going to last. And that's the will of God. And as we learn to say no to sin's enticements, we're going to grow in assurance, John, John said. "So That's number one. We're not to love the world. Then he goes on to tell us down in verse 24, kind of the second instruction of the field guide. He says, let what we've heard from the beginning abide in us, verse 24. So what does he mean? Well, he's referring to what he had taught them about Christ. That's what they've heard from the beginning. It's what John taught them, what the other apostles had taught them. So in other words, if we're going to navigate this world, we've got to know what's true. We've got to know what the apostles have taught. We need to know what the scripture says and to let it abide in us, let it remain in us, governing our thoughts, governing our inner lives and, and how we think and how we view the world. And if we do, we're going to grow in assurance then, so is number two. Then a few verses later, verse 28, John gives us another command, another instruction, another bit of this field guide. And John tells us there in verse 28 to abide in Christ. So similar to the first, similar to, to instruction number two, but here he says, abide in Christ. And the emphasis is on our dependence on Jesus. He wants us to learn to depend on him moment by moment in the temptations of life and the joys of life to cultivate a dependent relationship on jesus that'll that's we're going to be ultimately fruitful if we stay close to him in faith and as we learn to do this we're going to grow in confident assurance and then last week chapter three we we kind of broke into chapter three last week and we hit another command another another instruction and john told us there to behold the love of god he commands us to behold the love of god John commands us, he instructs us to slow down and really absorb the reality that God does love us. He really does, if we're believers. He wants us to see that God has called us out to be his children. And if we believed in Jesus, that means he's given us new birth. He's radically changed us from the inside. He's brought us forth from the spiritual womb, if you will. He's made us his spiritual progeny. And even though we're in process right now, we're God's children right now, currently. That's a fixed identity. And that means we're loved, we're beloved by God. And John says this love, this child status, it guarantees that we will be made completely like Jesus. We will be transformed when Christ returns. That's just like a bucket load of hope um, for us. But being a child of God, okay, being a child of God, this implies something else beyond just the fact that we're loved, as incredible as that is, it also means being a child, that we've been born by God, that means we inevitably will grow in righteousness. That's an inevitability if you're born of God. So John ended our paragraph last week in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, you see this. He says, everyone who, has, who thus hopes in him means has this hope of future glory and transformation. Everyone who has this gospel hope purifies himself as he is pure. Or we could say it like this. Everybody who's born of God, they will not make Rebellion against their father, a consistent, habituated practice. Is fear. fair? You see, before we were converted, no matter what we said, we actually just wanted to live for ourselves. That was true of every one of us. You may have been obviously rebellious, and somebody sees you on the street, they know, you know. Your parents knew, like, he's rebellious, she's rebellious. Or maybe you weren't so obvious in your rebellion. Maybe you even liked doing the right things because your parents and friends thought you were such a good person. They called you a good person. propped you up to your other siblings as a good child, the model child, and you loved their affirmation. And so that motivated you to be good. Whatever the case, we loved ourselves and we lived for ourselves. Before conversion, we were not crushed by our sin. We didn't humbly hunger after true righteousness, a righteousness that's born out of the understanding of what all Christ has done for us and our gratitude toward Him. We didn't serve out of a genuine Humble love for God and all that He has accomplished for us. Pre conversion. You may have done a lot of good things, but this was not the motive. But after we truly came to see our sin, after we were humbled, after our eyes were opened to the glory of Christ, something deep within us changed. Christ became our trusted King. And we longed to be like him. We believe that he really does know what's best. He's not just a referee out there trying to steal our joy and tell us what we can't do. And so we're trying to get up as close to that line as we can. without. That's not the case anymore. Inwardly, something has changed because we've seen Christ. We've seen his glory in Scripture. We've seen the truth. And that's because God caused us to be born again. Like John says. We have a new divine parent, and he has brought us forth to share in his likeness. And just like biological children grow up and resemble their parents, so spiritual children grow up to resemble their spiritual parents. That's what John's going to emphasize tonight. Now, as obvious as that sounds, you know, as we're talking through it principally here, as obvious as that might sound, this, it is incredible how much deception surrounds this clear biblical concept. Deception in John's day abounded around this, this idea. This is why he's going to spend so much time on it. And deception abounds in ours too. So what was going on in John's day? We've talked about this. But there were teachers, we know, false teachers, who had, who had appeared to be in the church, and then they left their church, this church that he's writing to, caused lots of problems. We're causing, currently causing problems when John was writing. But those teachers who had left the church were living in habitual sin. They were living in habitual sin. And they, they lived in that way, even though they claimed, quite authoritatively, to know God. All right? They claimed to have an experience of God, to know Him, to know Him intimately, to know Him better than the rest of you. They had no problems with their sin. They even had seared their consciences to the point that they denied that they were even sinning. All right? Back in chapter 1. They said they had no sin. They had become so enamored with the world with its resources, with the pleasures that it offered, it becomes so enamored they were deceived about sin, they were actively perpetuating that deception among others in John's church. And John desperately doesn't want this church to fall prey to deception about sin. In fact, this is the only command in the paragraph for tonight. He says in verse 7, right in the middle of the paragraph, Little children, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Verse 7. You see it? This is John's next instruction in the field guide. If we're going to navigate this evil world, we've got to be on guard against people trying to deceive us, John says, or as I'm saying tonight, we need to learn to fight deception as his children. That's part of being a child. But what are we tempted to be deceived about in this context? Specific. He's specific in this context. Deception about the seriousness of habitual sin. The idea. He does not want his church, or us today, to be deceived about the seriousness of habitual sin and what it implies about the person committing it. John's language for habitual sin is the phrase that we see in verse 4 here in this passage. He says, no, notice it, it says, the one who makes a practice of sinning. You see that? Different translations might render it different ways, but it's, it's literally the one who does sin. And the idea is does, that verb, kind of wouldn't, is it's, it's a practice. It's a habituated practice. The one who makes a practice of sinning. It's a fixed doing, if you want to call it that way, a fixed doing, a practice. A sin that's unacknowledged as such and refuses repentance. John wants his readers, including you and I, to realize that if someone lives a life in ongoing, unrepentant sin, they cannot be a Christian. John is super clear, like offensively clear in this text. John, the apostle of love. (laughs) is offensively clear in this text about someone cannot be a Christian if they live in habituated, ongoing, unrepentant sin over the long haul. And he says it is a deception to think or teach or live otherwise. This life of sin reveals something, John's going to argue. It reveals that those folks are not of God. They're not born of God. Listen how many times he says this in the paragraph. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever does sin, is of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Verse 10. Whoever does not practice righteousness, that's a different way of saying it, same thing. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Crystal clear here. But this is not just a temptation for John's first century readers, is it? This deception about sin? Even as I say this, this might sound harsh to you. And if it does, it reveals that we've been conditioned by wider evangelicalism. The church is so easily deceived here. I grew up in a tradition that taught that as long as you profess faith in Christ, at some point, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you walked down an aisle, you were baptized, no matter how old, Three years old, ten years old. No matter, even if you did that, at some point, it, it didn't matter how you lived after that. I mean, it's going to be encouragements to not sin, do those kinds of things, but it wasn't determinative about your soul and the state of your soul. And so we would pray, you know, I remember the prayers for the backslidden people, people who had abandoned the church years ago. They had abandoned Jesus. They had abandoned the Bible and the authority of the Bible years ago. And we prayed for them to come back and we thanked the Lord that they would be in heaven because back then they prayed that prayer. We never doubted their conversion. And I personally lived a self-assured Christian life for many years. I was confident that I was a Christian. Even though my entire life revolved around myself. It, revol- it revolved not just around me, but around my sin. I wasn't convicted by it. Sure, I may have felt some guilt here and there, but I was in total bondage. Couldn't get out of it. Didn't want to get out of it. Hit it. And I even boasted in my sin with my friends, and I tempted others to indulge in my sin alongside me. And I was confident I was a Christian. But even as believers, we can fall prey to this deception. Okay, Even as in a good, healthy church. Evangelicalism at large tells us that the Lord doesn't really care about our sin. It's not a huge deal to Him. He accepts me just as I am. There's a kernel of truth in that. We don't clean ourselves up to come to the Lord. We come to him in our mess. But he doesn't leave us as we are, right? <laughs> but what they mean when they say that is they mean, I come to Jesus just as I am, and there's no moral imperative to change. He accepts me as I am. The God that I know is, is not invasive. He's not intrusive. He doesn't make any demands on me. That's not the God that I know. And even though churches may not say it, they, they, may, they likely often function as though sin is not a big deal at all. They don't teach about it. They don't teach clearly. They don't teach the full counsel of God on the issue. They don't put resources behind it to actually help people overcome sin. They outsource it to these different areas other, outside the church. I mean, there's functionally, the church functions as though sin is not a big deal at all. And we function as though it really doesn't matter how we live in evangelicalism because the Lord's just going to forgive us anyway, right? We're free in Christ, right? Like What's that stuff, Legalism, law stuff? That sounds law. Right? That's not us. We're free in Christ. Why are you angsting about your life? Why are you striving? It's about relationship, not religion, not rules, not duty. Suffice it to say that we're all tempted to fall prey to the deception that the Lord does not care about habitual sin in the church. Or, maybe a corollary, maybe we wouldn't say it quite that bluntly, that we may think it's not abnormal. This is normal, right? Habitual sin is normal in the church. It's supposed to be, not a big deal. John says that's a lie. John knows the falsehood. He knows the devastation that this deception will bring in the life of a church. Just think about it. When sin is minimized, the gospel will inevitably be lost. When sin doesn't matter, eventually sin won't be preached at all and repentance will be ignored. And have we not already seen this? John also knows that the churches will be filled with false converts. With people who have been told that they're right with God, but who are actually still children of the devil. He knows that the church of the living God will look just like the world. Full of envy, infighting, gossip, pride, maliciousness. Because they have no power. He knows that love won't abound when sin is minimized. And he knows that God will not be glorified people definitely will not be served. And he knows that Christ's very mission will be threatened. All because sin's not a big deal. So in our passage tonight, John gives us the next field guide instruction. Okay, He tells us that we need to fight deception. And he doesn't just tell us to fight it, but he gives us truth about sin to help us fight that deception so he equips us to fight okay he equips us to help discern the lies so let's just read the passage i've been kind of hit and miss here um, in it but let's read the passage and then we'll, we'll walk through these john says verse 4 flowing out of this tremendous hope that we have as children of god being born anew that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. There's our command, the only one in the passage. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. there's instruction to let no one deceive you, and then it's this whole passage is laced with truth about sin that's going to help us fight that deception. So, we're going to look tonight at five realities about habitual sin. All right, five realities about habitual sin. Now, just a, a forewarning, it's probably going to seem a little heavy, and that's okay. Because this is necessary if we're going to take it seriously. First reality is that habitual sin is flagrant rebellion. Habitual sin is flagrant rebellion, verse 4. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, so everyone who's got this fixed doing of sin, they also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John begins the paragraph by helping us see the seriousness of habitual sin. He calls it lawlessness. But what is that? Kind of like what well, we have to figure out, right? We're going to understand this, this point. What's lawlessness? Well, lawlessness is a word that is used for calculated rebellion. As the, the name implies, it's a, a complete disregard for law. Okay. When it's applied to God... It means a complete disregard for his instructions, for what the creator commands. So even though humans have always been lawless since Adam and Eve, right, and their fall, that was a transgress, the command, right? Even though humans have always been lawless, the Bible predicts that lawlessness increases in the last days. We're in them, right? We're in the final hour. John's told us back in chapter 2. So Jesus predicts in Matthew 24, 12 that lawlessness would increase in these last days. And these are the days that we're living in. And Paul goes further in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and he describes the final Antichrist, the one that's coming, that all these other little Antichrists typify. This final Antichrist is the man of lawlessness. Same word. He's the man of lawlessness, meaning he's characterized by lawlessness. He supports it. He promotes it. He gets behind outright rebellion against the one true and living God. It characterizes him. And I think that's, that flavor is happening in this, in this whole passage. This, obviously, John has told us we're in the last days already. Um, earlier in the, in the letter... He's talked about antichrists, right? He's talked about a lot of things that are around the the last days, this last time. And so I think this lawlessness word is is kind of freighted with all of that, all that context. So the point is it's serious, right? Sin is serious. It's lawlessness. John wants us to see that the person who makes sin their fixed practice, this person is inhabituated, flagrant, And calculated rebellion against their so called father. Is that fair? You see the connections? In other words, he's helping us ratchet up the seriousness of habitual sin. John knows that even as believers were tempted to minimize and justify habitual sin, believers are tempted. We, you and I, are tempted to minimize and justify habitual sin. Repentance is very difficult. Most of the time, isn't it? Our old man just doesn't want to like roll over and die when we're trying to repent of, of sin. John knows that even as believers, we're tempted in this area. It's tempting just to, just to throw in the towel, just to think, man, this is just how I am. You know? This is, I, I can't overcome this. Maybe I should just accept it. Is it really that bad? Does anyone really need to know about this? Sinful practice that I, I can't overcome, and like we saw, the Christian subculture here doesn't help. You know, you you're you going to these churches; they're not they're not they're not helping you work through these issues. And then on top of that, you know, we're we're imbibing all of these these cultural things, but um, they tempt us to rationalize our habitual sin in all kinds of ways. Just trying to think of some maybe I haven't talked about before. We were laughing about this on Tuesday night, but the Enneagram right tempts us to. To view our sin in certain, in, in categories and, and kind of accept accept our sin, you know, I, I'm a reformer, right? You know, like number one, am I right? You're like you're trying to act like you don't know. Yeah, I'm a reformer, and so you just need to accept the fact that I can't admit when I'm wrong. So just like, get over it. I'm a three or whatever. Like what is that doing? Christians imbibe that stuff. Like and, and I'm not saying that it can't be helpful in maybe thinking about yourself and understanding yourself. But when you begin to rationalize your habitual sin because you're a 3 or a 5 or a 4 wing 3 or whatever you are, that's a problem. These things these things flow in, you know, our our, our psychological disorders. Again, I'm not saying all of that's wrong, but you, I have social anxiety. Okay. So you're afraid of, of, of how you are perceived in crowds. That's called the fear of man. So that's sin. So we need to, we need to work through that. That's okay. Like I, I get it. I'm, I fear man too. I've got to work on that. I've got to repent of that. But our psychological disorders often are just cloaks for habituated sin. And the church just, just gives hearty approval to that. And this, this all just kind of is a way of saying, well, this is how I am. It's how I am. And the saddest thing as a pastor, when I see this, the the saddest thing beyond the deception is that people think that this is what's best for them. People think that staying habituated in sin and calling it something different is freedom, but their lives are burning down. It's not good to have an anxiety disorder. Christ wants to liberate you from fear. And he has the power to do it. It's difficult, yes, but there is power in Christ. People rationalize their pattern sin because they think it's best for them when in reality they stay enslaved to it and they stay in, in absolute bondage. They never experience the joyful liberation of true enslavement to Christ. The freedom that comes as we humble ourselves, confess our sin, turn from it, and cultivate righteousness in its place. And John warns us here that habitual sin, sin that's unacknowledged, unrepented of, accepted, this habituated sin is actually patterned lawlessness. So just, I know most of you don't have kids. But, for those of you who do, you know what I'm talking about. Imagine an eight-year-old child telling their dad, He doesn't care about family house rules anymore. He's going to continue to talk disrespectfully to his mother, your wife. And he's going to keep slapping his sister when he doesn't get what he wants. He's going to keep doing that despite what the dad said. That evokes a faithful father's severe discipline, doesn't it? As it ought to. The father would not be faithful to his son if he did not act swiftly and severely with that kind of overstep, with the direct rebellion against him. Saying, I see that's your standard and I do not plan to obey that. John wants us to see that patterned, practiced sinning is just this. It's a habitual calculated rebellion against your father's instruction for you and your good instruction but the glorious thing for a dad for a for a believer is that if God really is our father if he's our spiritual dad if he really has caused us to be born again and we're flirting around with that kind of patterned rebellion guess what he's going to do he's coming in love for us to rescue us from that. He's going to discipline us. So we should rejoice every time he does. Why? Because he's keeping us from this kind of hardened, patterned rebellion that leads to more and more devastation. He's keeping us from that arriving at that point of no return. So really that's the first reality. Again, just John's just trying to put in our minds what sin actually is. It's flagrant Rebellion against God. That's the first reality. Now, the second reality that blows away this deceptive fog about sin is that habitual sin opposes Christ's mission. It opposes Christ's mission. Really, all sin opposes Christ's mission. But in particular, habituated sin, This, in a believer's life that's saying, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to continue living in this. I'm not going to work on it. I'm not going to acknowledge it. That is diametrically opposed to Jesus' mission. And John makes this point twice in the paragraph. Once he's in verse 5, and then he does it another time in verse 8. And I've included both just for the sake of our heading here. So in verse 5, he says that Christ appeared to take away sin. He appeared to take it away, not to perpetuate it. So look look with me in verse 5. You know, meaning you've already been taught this, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. You know that. John's saying, you know that Christ came, he appeared for this reason, to take away sins, not for people to continue in them. His people, in particular, to continue in sins. So the next time you're tempted to think that Christ doesn't care about your sin, it's not a big deal. Consider the fact that he came to earth He endured every hostility. He hung naked on a cross and experienced the Father's wrath to deal with your sin. Or as John says, to take your sin away. I can assure you that Jesus knows the seriousness of sin and that He does not want it to characterize His people's life. How do we know that? Look at what he endured to take it away. Now, he makes this point again even more forcefully in verse 8. He says that Christ appeared to destroy the devil's works, not to to tolerate the devil's works. Okay, Look in verse 8. Back half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he came, he appeared, first coming, to destroy, obliterate the devil's works. He doesn't say to tolerate the devil's works. So what are the works of the devil? In John's mind, it's the sin he tempts human beings to commit. Those are the works of the devil. The sins that he tempts human beings to commit. How do I know that? Well, in verse 12, he's gonna, we're not going to cover this tonight, but we will next time. Verse 12, he references Cain... He describes Cain as of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. So Cain was of the devil, meaning he was a child of the devil, and because of that, he murdered his brother. So you see that child of the devil. So there's devil kind of behind Cain. The works of the devil is the murder of Abel. So that's a work of the devil in John's mind. And here he says that Jesus came to do what to these sins? It doesn't say take them away. It says to destroy them. To destroy them. It doesn't say he came to allow his people to rename them and live with them. It doesn't say he came to allow his people to rationalize them because they're Enneagram 8s. Obviously. No, he came, Jesus came to destroy them, to obliterate those works in his people. Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he hates your sin. He hates it. With the most perfect hatred. John's going to say, there is no sin in Jesus. He's totally opposed to it in every way. Now, is he patient? 100%. Is he loving? Yes. Does he know how hard it is for us in our weaknesses? Better than anybody. Is he empathetic? With our, yes. He knows we're dust. All those things, yes. And to the highest level. Christ is all those things. But does he in ever, in any moment, accept or condone or rationalize sin? Never. He's never once done that. His goal, beloved, is to obliterate it. That's what it said. That's what John said. It happens progressively now. It's not all at once. He doesn't just blow all the sin out of your life. You know, like a shotgun. Just but... That's his goal. And one day, at his second appearing, he will eradicate its presence fully and finally. He does not want you advancing Satan's oppressive, destructive agenda by your works, which are his works. Satan's works. It's not good. It's not good for you, not good for the world. He wants you advancing his agenda, the agenda of life. And that's what he's so committed to helping you cultivate and to destroying everything in you. It's a work of the devil. So John helps us see that habitual sin is actually diametrically opposed to Christ and his mission. And that's our second reality about pattern sin that we've got to know if if we're going to take it seriously and, and battle it the right way. The third reality about habitual sin that we've got to know is it evidences ignorance of the real Jesus. Okay? Habitual sin, living a life in sin, kind of a cavalier life that doesn't really worry about it, that evidences an ignorance of the real Jesus. Look with me at the end of verse 5. So he says, you, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and, so we're picking up this point, and in him... There is no sin. So, no one who abides in him, right? So if in him there is no sin, no one who abides in him, the one with no sin, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So habitual sin evidences an ignorance of Jesus, the real Jesus. John's third reality here gets at what kind of, of pattern sin, uh, I'm sorry, John, John's reality gets at what this kind of pattern sin actually reveals about a person, what it shows about a person, no matter what they claim. Remember, these false teachers were claiming to know God. He says that this kind of patterned, cavalier, unrepentant, long-term sin, this reveals that people really don't know the true Jesus. Now, just track with me in his argument here. It spans a couple verses. He says initially that the real Jesus has no sin in him at the end of verse 5. He's going to kind of bookend that by talking about how he is righteous at the end of verse 7. But he has no sin, right? Right? The end of verse 5. And his point is that Jesus is not cozy with sin. He's holy. He's completely devoid of sin. That's the point. There's not a trace of it in him. And I think some people reading the Gospels, they mistake Jesus' involvement with sinners. Incredible condescension and humility. Incredible love. But they mistake that for Jesus' sort of acceptance of sin. It's like nothing could be further from the truth. He doesn't accept or condone sin or just sweep it under the rug and say it's okay. In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus was so holy that when he came and interacted with an unclean leper and touched the unclean leper that would have rendered any other Jew unclean, what happened? went the other way, didn't it? It went out and changed the leper. He healed them instead of being rendered unclean by them. And after he healed people, this is not just like one instance, this is multiple instances. After he healed people, what did he say? Go and sin no more. No more. He dined with sinners because they knew they needed him and were repentant were coming to him for mercy. He's not just going to the bar to hang out with other people who are reveling in their sin. There is no sin in Jesus, no approval of sin in Jesus, and he intends to transform his people. That's why John goes on to say that those who abide in him, next verse, they don't sin. Why? Because they are entrusting themselves to him. They are trusting upon and imitating a sinless savior. He doesn't mean they become sinless forever. That's not what he's saying, to not sin, right? You've got to think about it in context. But that the pattern of their life is one of repentance. It's one of walking in the light. It's one of confession of sin. It's one of availing themselves of the, of the cross and of learning to trust Jesus when it's hard and cultivating righteousness step by step, day after day. their there backslidings? Yes. Are there ebbs and flows? Of course. But it's one of, of trajectory. It's one of walking in the light. One of hungering for righteousness as the overall long term pattern of life. Those who abide in him, he says, don't sin. Then John goes on to say the corollary is also true. If someone keeps on sinning, this reveals they've never seen or known the real Christ. That's what he says. It's John's way of saying they're following a false Jesus, not the true one. He's going to tell this church at the end of the letter to keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from counterfeits, from false messiahs that will also be characteristic of the last days, right? Keep yourselves from these false Christs. No matter how intimately that people talk about Jesus, no matter what they say he shows them in their private times or tells them in still small voices, no matter how passionately people raise their hands at campus community, John says, if their lives are marked by practiced sin, they do not know the real Jesus. Now, it's tempting to second-guess that, isn't it? Especially when you see such dramatic displays of worship. But John looks us in the eye in verse 7 and says, let no one deceive." So how do you know? Well, John says it's actually quite simple at the end of verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Just like he's righteous. He's saying that whoever pursues righteousness, whoever's hungering and thirsting for the imitation of Jesus, this reflects that they've actually been given the righteousness of Christ. That's That's what it means. Whoever practices righteousness, whoever does righteousness is righteous, meaning they've they've been granted the righteousness of Jesus, who he just describes, is also righteous. (laughs) It shows that they are becoming, they already have been given in Jesus. It's not to attain righteousness, that would go against everything that John's already taught us in this letter. John's already told us that we have no righteousness in ourselves. Remember back to chapter 1? He tells us to confess our sin. Not to clean it up. Just confess it. Own it. Don't excuse it. And what, is, what's, what's, what exchange do we get? Complete forgiveness. Help. Cleansing. He tells us to look to Christ in chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2. When we sin. To look to Jesus, who is the righteous one. What does he mean by that? How does he call him the righteous one? Because it's his righteousness, not mine. Meaning we're to draw assurance from the fact that he's our advocate, he's our propitiation, and that his righteousness covers us, not the other way around. And here John says, you can be sure that the one who has been humbled by this tremendous gift of righteousness and who is now hungering and thirsting for the tangible expression of that righteousness to be a reality in their life. That person has a real relationship with the real Jesus, the Jesus who is righteous and has no sin in him. That's how you can know. Now, I know a statement like this sounds harsh from the disciple of love. And uh, what John's about to say in the next point is going to be even harsher, so um, just a heads up. But but helping someone to see that the Jesus they profess to know, the Jesus that accepts them as they are, so to speak, doesn't push them to repent, helps, all that stuff. Helping someone see that this is not the real Jesus is the most loving thing we can do. In fact, when you move in and you try to help them see it, you're actually an agent of Christ himself who is communicating himself truly to the deceived person. That's incredible. You've got to think of yourself in that way. Sometimes I even appeal to that when I'm talking to people on on that, that are deceived. This is an opportunity. Christ is speaking through me to you. Christ is using you to reveal himself truly to the deceived person, maybe for the first time. And we've got to be willing to graciously and patiently cut through people's experiences and help them interpret those experiences through the lens of Scripture, through texts like these. Because experientialism reigns, doesn't it? People appeal to that and they think it's locked tight. Only one problem we are not trustworthy sources, are we? And um, how we interpret things. <laughs> We're not but the scriptures are true. And remember, the, be- the beauty of this is that John the Apostle is writing this very text because he's representing the real Jesus, the Jesus that he saw and heard and touched in chapter 1. You don't talk about experience. He's got the experience. <laughs> so, we can't know the real Jesus apart from studying and yielding to what these very documents say. So that's the third reality that John gives us about habitual sin. Let's look at the fourth. Not only does habitual sin reveal ignorance of the true Jesus, but it also reveals a devilish family resemblance. I warned you. John's going to get intense here. Habitual sin reveals a devilish family resemblance. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? You guys read? Of the devil. Yes, of the devil. Good. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, John takes it even further. By the way, he's following Jesus' own model in John 8. You can write that down, study that later. He takes it further and says that people who refuse to deal with sin, who refuse to repent of it, and are content to let it dominate their lives, these people are actually of the devil, John says. I'm not talking about people who are trying, who have sin, and they're they're grappling with it, and it is dominating their lives, and they're broken by it, and they're trying to they're trying to get help. They may even be defeated at times. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these people that have given themselves over and are justifying it. These people are actually of the devil, John says. Meaning their paternal influence is not God, but it is Satan himself, and they resemble him. So John roots this incredible assertion in the fact that patterned habitual sin mimics Satan. Because Satan has been sinning from the beginning. He's the ultimate habitual sinner. It means that for millennia, from the beginning of creation, that Satan's life has been patterned by rebellion against God. Now, his point is not to delve into the timing of Satan's fall here, but just to say that Satan's existence is one of continual sin. And so those who practice continual sin evidence that they are his children. Now, it's important to note that, that John's language is, in, is intentionally echoing a theme that we've talked about before, and I just want to draw your attention to this. The concept of the seed of the serpent, Okay? The seed of the serpent, all the way back in Genesis 3. Again, you can write down John 8, because Jesus builds on that in John 8. And then John here, in 1 John, is building on that. But part of the curse is that the serpent would have offspring. According to Genesis 3, the serpent would have offspring who would be at enmity with the offspring of the woman. We come to quickly find out in Genesis that the offspring of the snake are not, that's not baby snakes. That's not what Moses is talking about. He's talking about people... Human beings who continue in their rejection of God. They don't repent. They continue in it. And it's exemplified in Genesis 4, in the life of Cain, who murders his brother Abel. John's going to connect these dots for us next week with Cain and Abel. But more on that later. In that text, back in Genesis, Genesis 4, Abel is identified as the offspring of Eve and is replaced by Seth, showing the continuance of the line of the woman. And throughout the Bible, these two lines develop. See the serpent, see the woman, and they are at enmity with one another, according to Genesis 3. The line of the serpent develops through the nations, and the line of the woman, the line of Seth, develops through Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and leading ultimately to Jesus. But Jesus is not simply another man. He is the God-man. The new Adam, the new representative, who re- represents his people and humanity fully. And finally, he's the eternal son of God who gains access to the covenant family of God for all who trust in him. In other words, he's the entrance point, or like he says in John, he's the door, or he's the way for all who believe in him. Now this reality is often incredibly offensive, this idea that people are children of the devil. Okay? This is incredibly offensive to those who are self-assured, and yet they're continuing headlong in sin. I remember when people would kind of confront me, some of my bold, brave friends, uh, when I was an unbeliever and I was professing faith in Christ. Incredibly offensive. Who do they think they are, right? But we need to realize that as we're seeking to help people see these things, that unless they repent, they're going to be offended. When we help them see that they're acting like They're mimicking their father, the devil. And what tempers us, what gives us patience and tremendous love and tenderness as we seek to help people see the reality about themselves, is that we too are once children of the devil. Do you ever think of yourself that way? At one time, you were his offspring. Even if by God's grace, you never got to the point where you committed anything flagrantly evil. You were still, at some point, part of his progeny. Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 talk about that. So as we seek to help others, we should be saying something like this. "You know, This is exactly what I was before I came to know Christ. The reason you were enslaved is because he is your father. I know what it's like, but there's hope. There's hope, there's freedom It comes from the truth. And on top of that, when we contemplate the truth, this truth in particular as a believer, our hearts should be filled with praise and thanksgiving. Why is that? Well, it's obvious, because God himself has transferred us from Satan's abusive family to his own family, through his son, at great cost to his son. And like we saw last week, we're not just transferred, like an adoption. We are spiritually reborn. Reborn. We've come to share in God's nature as his children through the gift of his spirit, and that's exactly where John goes next. He gives us our fifth and final reality tonight about habitual sin, and it's an encouraging one, finally, all right? Number five, it is ultimately impossible for the believer. Habitual sin is ultimately impossible for the believer. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. All right, habitual sin, in other words, is ultimately impossible for the believer. John's saying here that true believers don't make a practice of sinning, and he tells us why. In other words, he's saying that it's ultimately impossible for the believer to live his or her life in continued, unrepentant sin over the long haul. All right, that's what he's saying. Now, before we get into the why, like, why is that the case? Let's talk, let's talk just a second about what John's not teaching. Hey, if you were to read this verse in isolation, especially if you're reading from like a very literal translation, it sounds like he is teaching some kind of Christian perfectionism. Meaning something like every believer is not able to sin because they've been born of God. The implication would be if you sin at all then, if, or if you're even able to sin, that you're not a real believer. And sadly, some people have taught that through the years based on this verse. Entire denominations still believe that. Um, and it's very detrimental. Uh, denominations like Church of the Nazarene. But all it takes is a glance at the rest of this letter. And in particular, the context of the statement to see that he's not teaching Christian perfectionism. Back in chapter 1, he said that The very first evidence of a believer is that they admit sin honestly to God. Chapter 1, verse 9. That's the very first evidence of a real believer. Not that they're sinless, but that they admit sin to God. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, if we sin, implying that we will, if we sin, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, even right out of the gate, John's. it's clear that John has a category for sin in the believer's life. And even if you remember back to last week, the closer context of our passage today, John taught us that we are now children of God, but what we will be, remember that? I.e. perfectly glorified, what we will be awaits a future appearing. The second coming of Jesus. So what does that imply? We're not perfect yet. <laughs> right? So we're children now, but we're going to be something different later, and that different is perfection. We I mean, ain't perfect now. Okay? It means we're going to struggle with sin. And that's that's and then and then he says in verse 3 of, of chapter 3 that everyone who thus hopes in him continually purifies himself as he is pure. So again, and that's what he launches out of for our passage tonight. So there's no way in the context that he's saying that he's teaching some kind of Christian perfectionism. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying that, he's, he's saying in very strong language, he's saying that a real believer will not continue their Christian lives in unrepentant sin over the long haul. In fact, not only, not only is he saying that they won't do that, he's saying it's impossible for them to do that. They are unable to do that. It's very strong language. You and I will not be able to pattern our lives in lawless behavior against our Father if we really know Christ. Why? Because we have willpower? No. The text tells us. It says, because God's seed abides in us. Literally, sounds crude, but his sperma abides in us. What does that mean? Well, again, the imagery is dramatic, and I think for an intended effect. He's continuing this new birth metaphor, seed of of the serpent, seed of the woman, language, offspring of God, language. He's continuing this family metaphor. He says he's implanted himself within us so that we have become a sharer, to use Peter's language, a sharer of his divine nature. Second Peter 1.4 We've become sharers of the divine nature. He's implanted himself within us. So what is the seed? Well, I think the best option, again, it's debated, but I think the best option is that he's referring to his own spirit. God's own spirit. The Holy Spirit. I think he's doing the same thing here that he did back in chapter 2. Remember when he talked about how we've been given the anointing? And that's, Paul's, I mean, that's uh, John's first uh, sort of assurance that we're not going to be led astray out of the truth, is that we have the anointing. We have the Holy Spirit. So I think the same thing's happening here, but in a different metaphor. This time, it's in keeping with the family metaphor. We have God's seed within us. We have his Spirit. Now, this is incredibly encouraging. <laughs> Because John's confidence is that we will not fall headlong into habitual sin as the pattern of our lives because His Spirit abides in us. Hallelujah. This means that His Spirit will not allow us to continue in habituated sin like an unbeliever does, even if we wanted to. Even if we fall prey to some deception, we begin to crave sin like we do often. The Spirit will not let us stay there. He will convict. He will illumine. He will discipline. And just again, remember, we didn't cause ourselves to be born again. It was God's sovereign decision in our lives. We exercised faith, but faith is like the breathing of an infant after it's born. Did we exercise faith of our own will? We did. But why did we do that? Why did we have ears to hear? Why did all of that happen? It's because He caused us to be born again. He loved us first. And so if you've exercised faith, if you've noticed something deep within you has changed, if you realize that you're not what you once were, even though you're not what you want to be, even if now you see what Christ has done and the glory of it, if you're broken by the seriousness of your sin, all that, if you've availed yourself of Christ, it's because He has given you new birth. It's because God's seed abides in you. And that is our ultimate confidence that we will not fall headlong into a life of unrepentant sin, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from His hand because the Spirit abides in us. So he summarizes this whole passage in verse 10. We're not going to comment on it, just it's self-explanatory. He says, by this... He's bringing it all together. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not, hold on, love his brother. We're not been talking about love this entire passage. What's going on? He's transitioning us to the next paragraph. So next week we're going to look at applied righteousness, which is love. And we're going to look at that in depth. But what do you do, okay? Let me just end here. I know we're, I don't even know what time it is. Really late. But what do you do with something like this, all right? As is we're, is we're exiting out of this passage. What do you do with a paragraph like this, of these warnings, of these, these realities about habitual sin? Well, just for the believer, okay? He wants to blow away the fog of deception that surrounds habitual sin this deception that we're kind of coming in and out of, and evangelicalism's pressing in. He wants to blow this fog away. John does not want us to treat sin casually or to begin to think that how we live doesn't really matter because we're forgiven. It matters. It matters to Christ. It matters for his mission. It matters for all kinds of reasons. And when we start to fall to that deception, he wants us to see that there's a a domino effect in the life of the church. And so he's, he's sounding the alarm for, for believers so that we sort of raise our eyes and see the dangers of habitual sin and that we're motivated to continue the, the fight for righteousness. All right? Also, in a, in a text like this, ask yourself, believer, are there any areas of persistent sin in your life that you know about that you are excusing that you are tempted to minimize or you're tempted to just sort of say, it's just my personality? Or whatever it may be. If you're a believer here tonight, this sermon is the very means that God is using to wake you up. It's His word that's coming to you that the Spirit uses to alert you to a pattern that's forming or has formed in your life. It doesn't necessarily mean you're an unbeliever, okay? It's just this is part of His sanctifying process in your life. So take heart. Be encouraged. That's the Spirit's work in you if you're seeing that. So, what do you do? Go back to chapter 1, right? You confess it, you come to him, you, and, but you want to get help, right? You want to be working on this. You don't just want let, to let it lie dormant, because sin's never dormant. You're either killing sin or it's killing you, like the Puritan said. So get help from someone, and if you're not sure how to go about repenting of it, definitely talk with one of us here. But it starts like we saw in verse... Chapter one, verse nine, with confession, with owning it, not making excuses, and saying this is the issue. All right. So now let's let's talk about one other category. Okay, if your life's dominated, you're sitting here tonight, and you're like Clay, my life is dominated by unrepentant sin. I know it. I'm terrified of it. I lack assurance. It could mean one of two things. It could mean that you're an unbeliever. So, you've been given an opportunity to wake up right now. Right now. This fear is a blessing, so do not harden your heart. Or, it could mean you're a weak believer. And the weak believer, the Lord is being faithful to stir up a desire to repent in you. Kind of back to category number two, we were just talking about. Either way, it doesn't matter. Okay? So the point is not for you to angst in doubt over your soul. The point is for you to repent. Christ wants the same response in both groups <laughs> repentance, faith, trust in Him, honesty about sin, growth, right here in the church. So whatever you do, don't hide it. That's how unbelievers live. Instead, run into the arms of Christ who draws near to sinners, remember, to cleanse them. And He is here with forgiveness full and free. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before You and are so thankful for the clarity of Your Word. I pray that You would work according to your spirit and all the ways that you intend through the proclamation. We pray it in Jesus' name.